It's the January 10th, 2020 episode of Weekly Signals Meltdown. Broadcasting from Studio A at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And as always, President Trump's Adderall connection, Mahler, the fake news dog. Today, we'll be talking about bad almonds. Yeah, bad almonds, Mahler. What is it? Bad. Bad. Trump's demons, leaf blowers, the Y2020 bug, and more. But first... What's your favorite cannabinoid, Mike? You know that marijuana stuff? Yeah. The chemicals in there? Uh-huh. Then, yeah. I mean, I, so far, THC. THC is your favorite? So far, yeah, that's me like... too. I always ask for the highest THC. Do you? Yeah. Well, that's you, what I'm looking for. You are, you've always been right there on the edge, I know. Well, I don't know if it's the edge. But, I just, it's yeah. like, what? I mean, if you, if you like dark chocolate and you ask for the darkest chocolate, does that make you on the edge? I'll have to think about that. Yeah. From Vice. Canna- cannabis. <laughs> you know that stuff? <laughs> cannabis? Cannabis. Oh, yeah, I've heard about it. Cannabis sativa produces more than 400 chemicals, but only one tetrahydrocannabinol, THC, gets you high. <laughs> or so they say. This week, scientists discovered two new cannabinoids. The first, tetrahydrocannabiforol, or THCP, is 30 times more potent than THC. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They don't know if it gets you 30 times more stoned or even if it's psychoactive at all. Mm. But I'm willing to give it a try. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Why not? We're, we're like explorers in that regard. Yes. The sure. scientists I'm... also found another new cannabinoid, cannabidiforol, CBDP, a cousin to cannabidiol, or CBD, you know, the uh, popular wellness oil. Yes. You ever have that stuff? Yes, actually, a very quick story. My dad has had a chronically bad left foot for a long, long time. So bad that the he actually had surgery to remove the nerve. It was bothering him so wow. much. He's been using that, uh, CBD. Rubbing it on. Rubbing his, it yeah. on, the, on the area that is painful almost all the time. Yeah. And he's experiencing no pain. Yeah. And if he doesn't use it for a day... It starts to hurt him again. So I, by proxy, will attest to the power of CBD. Now, you just rub it on? Yeah. On yourself? No, I actually put it on his foot because he can't do it. So I rub it on his foot every night, and he's pain-free. But the question on the floor is, have you had any? No, I've never never used it. That's that sublingual stuff, you know. You just kind of put it under your tongue, Mm -hmm. and you just wait for it. And it's good. Okay. If you have trouble sleeping. Yeah, I do. Well, I would I would advise you get a little dripper. Okay. And uh, open wide, put it under your tongue, hold it there for as long as you can, and then swallow it. Wow. Swallow the rest. It's the best way to get it into your body. Is I have real sleep issues. I can't sleep yeah. more than five hours. I would I can't. advise I, it. I, See I mean, what I've, happens. If yeah. it doesn't work. No, no, great. this is great. I had no idea it would work for that. Okay, well, thank yeah. you. The discovery of THCP could explain why different strains can give you different highs. I find that fascinating. Yeah, I'd yeah. like to look into that. Because yeah. I've heard some people scoff at the idea that different strains give you different highs. Right. I think but, this uh, really really demands further research. Really, yeah, I, I me think too. That, yeah. uh-huh. 
It also could explain some of the medicinal aspects of THC, which is used to treat nausea and appetite loss, among other things. Yeah, I use it for appetite loss. <laughs> I don't, I don't have an appetite loss, but <laughs> well, I use it when I'm when I want to have uh, a, a what, eating fest. That's what you tell your friends. So, yeah. yeah, basically, I I only do this for my appetite. The discovery of these cannabinoids is thanks to advancements in mass spectrometry, an analytical technique that measures mass-to-charge ratios of ions. This is the amazing thing about marijuana. It's a weed, for God's sake. And it's a... You're, well, it's a weed. It's, well, it's a plant. plant. Yeah. Right. Thank God we're starting... The decriminalization, the legalization yeah. have finally given way to real research on this. And this yeah. is a very, very good development in the world of medicine and me enjoying music yeah hey Mahler what's your uh, favorite cannabinoids you have anything yeah 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 Yeah, well I like that one too yeah Yeah. that's a good one from the Guardian almost nine years after it became the scene of one of the world's worst nuclear accidents Fukushima is planning to transform itself into a renewable energy hub the local government vowed to power the region with 100% renewable energy by 2040. I think they should do it by 2030. Yeah, me too. Compared to 40% today. Well, they've already got a head start. Right. Come on, guys. Right. The 300 billion yen project, that's $275 billion, will involve the construction of 11 solar and 10 wind farms on abandoned farmland and in mountainous areas by the end of March 2024. An 80-kilometer grid will connect Fukushima's power generation with the Tokyo metropolitan area, once heavily dependent on nuclear energy produced at Fukushima's two atomic plants. When completed, the project will generate up to 600 megawatts of electricity, roughly two-thirds the output of an average nuclear power plant. Okay. They say that now, and I'm just, and it may not take place, but I'm thinking that as the technology of solar evolves, those numbers will go up dramatically. They're getting more and more efficient. They're using better techniques for capturing solar. That is a good number. It'll be a better number by the time they get through this. Despite the Fukushima disaster, Japan's conservative government is pushing to restart idle nuclear reactors. Are you kidding? Yeah, that's a bad idea. No, it's a bad idea. It wants nuclear power, which generated almost a third of the country's power before Fukushima. Yeah, they make this like a positive thing, but it also caused that disaster. How much money did it cost to recover from that disaster? How many lives were destroyed because of that disaster? And a a good chunk of the country is basically uninhabitable. Yeah. And this is an ongoing e- ecological disaster, right? Yeah. We're pumping millions of gallons of water through radioactive material, which is going back out into the ocean. That cannot be good for us. Yeah. Anyway, it wants this power uh, to make up between 20 and 22 percent of its overall energy mix by 2030. Yeah. All of Japan's 54 reactors were shut down after the Fukushima meltdown. Nine reactors are in operation today, having passed safety checks. Well, yeah. Japan is heavily dependent on imported coal and natural gas. It's the third biggest importer of coal after India and China. So that's not a good thing. From Vox. 
Installing air filters in classrooms has surprisingly large educational benefits. The Porter Ranch gas leak led a bunch of schools in Los Angeles to install commercial available air filters. Then something strange happened. Test scores went up yeah. by a lot. Yeah. The impact of the air filters is considerable given what a simple change we're talking about. The story begins with the 2015 Aliso Canyon natural gas leak near Porter Ranch in the San Fernando Valley. As a result, the Los Angeles Unified School District and the owner of the gas well, the Southern California Gas Company, installed air filters in every classroom, office, and common area in all schools within five miles of the gas leak. The gas had dissipated at the time of the installation, but the filters cleaned up the background indoor air pollution. Math scores went up by 0.2 standard deviations and English scores by 0.18. For context, this is comparable in scale to some of the most optimistic studies on the potential benefits of smaller class sizes. Wow. That's pretty good. That's great. So what I'd say is smaller classes and air filters, yeah. and we'd be geniuses. <laughs> huh? Yeah. This is definitely an underreported story about the gas leak at Alicia Canyon. Yeah. This is a this was a big deal. It was so massive that I know people personally who lived near there and had yeah. to evacuate for months. They couldn't live in their homes. Yeah. And uh, I can't imagine that we're not going to see some ramifications of this moving forward for many, many years to come. But it's nice that something positive. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely positive yeah. about. Yeah, absolutely. If this news makes you feel smarter, may I recommend a donation to KUCI? Because you are. Just go to KUCI.org. Your generous donation is how we stay on air. Commercial free, free form, free speech radio, KUCI, 88.9 FM. From The Guardian. Do you like almonds, Mike? Oh, this is this is makes me sad. Yes, I love almonds. I love almond milk. I love all the things we're going to talk about in this story. I've and, stopped eating them since I've read this. Yeah. Thank you, Nathan, for for letting me know about this because now <laughs> yeah. I'm questioning everything it's sad. that I hold dear. Yes, but here we go. California's fertile Central Valley is home to 80 percent of the world's almond supply, and bees are essential to the functioning of the almond industry. But billions of them are dying in the process. A recent survey of commercial beekeepers in the U.S. showed that 50 billion bees were wiped out in a few months during winter 2018-2019. This is more than one-third of the commercial U.S. bee colonies, the highest number since the annual survey started in the mid-2000s. Some beekeepers attributed the high mortality rate to pesticide exposure, diseases from parasites, and habitat loss. And they're partially right. And those damn mites. Yeah, the damn mites. But environmentalists and organic beekeepers, like you and me, Mike, yes. yeah, <laughs> say the real culprit is America's reliance on industrial agricultural methods, especially those used by the almond industry. Oh. California's $11 billion almond industry has grown at an extraordinary rate. In 2000, almond orchards occupied 500,000 acres. By 2018, that had more than doubled. 
almond groves in the Central Valley now blanket an area the size of Delaware. That's about 2,500 square miles, producing 2.3 billion pounds of almonds annually. But even as almond production has steadily ramped up for decades, the number of commercial beehives or hives in the U.S. has remained at a steady 2.7 million colonies since the early 2000s. So how many almonds do you eat a year, Mike? You think how many pounds? Again, you're (laughs) killing me here. I just absolutely... I I bet bet you eat 10 pounds. Oh, easily. (laughs) Easily 10 pounds. I eat a lot too. Yeah. I like almonds. The average American eats two pounds of almonds every year, Mm -hmm. more than any other country. U.S. almond milk sales have grown 250% over the past five years to reach $1.2 billion dollars over four times that of any other plant-based milk. Every year, 35 million pounds of pesticides are dumped on almonds, more than any other crop. One of the most widely applied pesticides is the herbicide glyphosate. Roundup is what we're talking about here, which is a staple of large-scale almond growers. But Roundup has been shown to be lethal to bees as well as cause cancer in humans. The Almond Board's best practice guidelines encourage beekeepers to spend as little time in California's Central Valley as possible. Honeybees can travel up to three miles in search of varied forage. So even if the almond grower is doing everything right to protect their bees, the cotton or grape farmer down the road may be spraying bee toxic chemicals on crops. That's what we're talking. Even if the almond growers are saying, well, we're not using Roundup. You know, like if you're reading a package, say, at Trader Joe's, and they say, this grower doesn't use Roundup, that doesn't mean that these beads aren't getting slammed by Roundup. I bet I eat at least 40 to 50 pounds of almonds every year. At least. (laughs) Oh, Mahler, don't eat almonds. My God. Well, Mahler, you know, it's bad for dogs to eat almonds. I just want to put that out there. Oh, okay. They they can be toxic to little doggies. Yeah, I know. Almonds can. If they just have one, it's okay. And if you're talking about peanuts, I think peanuts are just fine, but it's peanut butter. Mm. And some of it will have xylitol as a sweetener in it, Mm -hmm. and that's bad. Okay. You don't want xylitol in your dog. It can be lethal. Now where do I go? Is it oat milk? Where do I go now? Because I do like almond milk. I like coconut milk. I like. How about water? I can't put that on my cereal, can I? Could I put water on my cereal? I don't know. How about yogurt? A little yeah, bit of yogurt yeah, and yeah, cereal? Yeah. Uh-huh. I make this breakfast drink and I put a fair I amount of almond I've milk. I've seen in. your breakfast drink. Yeah. I've had your breakfast drink. Okay. Thank you. Well, you're very welcome. Never but now, again. But now. <laughs> yeah, yeah Mama. From Science Alert, scientists have found that. Quasi-particles in quantum systems are quasi-immortal. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Isn't some... Yes. That doesn't mean they don't decay, but once these quasi-particles have decayed, they reorganize themselves back into existence. They reorganize themselves. Yeah. It's And uh, possibly on. ad infinitum. Yes. Forever. Forever. It's so amazing that these things, once they decay and they sort of fall yeah. apart, they find themselves again. This seems to defy the second law of thermodynamics, which says that entropy is an isolated system and it can only increase. In other words, things can only break down, not build back up again. Right. 
not the same things, right? That's yeah. what this is about. The same things are reorganized exactly. and coming back. But quasi-particles aren't particles the way we typically think of them, like electrons and quarks. They're the disturbances or excitations or oscillations in a solid caused by electrical or magnetic forces that collectively behave like particles. So quasi-particles in quantum systems aren't really immortal. It's a disappointment. <laughs> I was reading this article thinking, wow, immortality. All I have to do is be a quasi-particle. <laughs> That's all you need to do. Yeah. And this does, in fact, run right up against our good friend uh, George Carlin, who believed in entropy, in fact, celebrated it. Thank God we all die, and thank God we all get the hell off this planet. Yeah. Thank God that that happened. Well, it'd be really messy if we all stayed around Well, that's forever. true. And Ruben Verison yeah. said, if this decay proceeds very quickly, an inverse reaction will occur after a certain time. The debris will converge again. The, this process can reoccur endlessly, and a sustained oscillation between decay and rebirth emerges. Yeah. Wow. He's one of the researchers. He's yeah. one of the researchers yeah. there. I just This story just completely fried me. <laughs> So they don't really violate the second law of thermodynamics. They do decay. Well, that's because the oscillation is a wave that is transformed into matter. It's a wave. Their entropy is not decreasing but remaining constant, which is still pretty damn cool. <laughs> it's amazing. At the moment, the work is only in the theoretical realm, but the researchers believe this quasi-particle, quasi-immortality imbues it with strong potential for longer-lasting or long-lasting data storage in quantum computing systems. There you go. So, wow. Yeah. It's a fun little uh, discovery here. Yeah, definitely. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Irvine, California. Visit us at facebook.com slash KUCI 88.9 on our Tumblr blog at KUCIradio.tumblr.com on Twitter and Instagram at KUCI FM Stream us live on iTunes, or tune in, or go to KUCI.org. So what have you been up to lately, man? Well, you know, I've been getting organized. You know, every, organized. everybody every year says the same damn thing. I'm going to clean up my, this is going to happen, I'm going to be in. At the beginning of the year, I'm yeah. going to be Mike Newman. Newman. Yeah, Mike Newman, call me. I'm uh, going to be nicer. <laughs> well, well. Oh, you're so sweet, and uh, yeah. why don't... How don't, am I doing? Don't change. From the New Republic by Alex Perrine. Yeah. He's kind of a hot writer these days. Is he? Yeah. Fact Hacks. How Political Fact Checkers Distort the Truth. At the June 28th Democratic presidential debate, Bernie Sanders said, Three people in this country <laughs> own more wealth than the bottom half of America. And Glenn Kessler, who leads the Washington Post Fact Checker blog, wrote, This snappy talk is based on numbers that add up. But then he said, People in the bottom half have essentially no wealth, so the comparison is not especially meaningful. It's not meaningful except for the people who are homeless and malnourished, yes, I guess. Yes, Of course it's meaningful. It is meaningful. The fact that the bottom half of America doesn't have any wealth, it's basically underwater, is a significant fact. Yeah. Kessler is a former business section editor who happens to be a descendant of Royal Dutch Shell and Procter Gamble executives, an actual member of the American elite and a likely member of the 1%. 
I wonder if wealth shrinks your capacity for empathy. Yeah, I believe that to be true. He makes Sanders the regular target of his attempts to police the bounds of acceptable political realities from his perch at the Washington (laughs) Post. This is Alex Perrine talking here. Kessler dings Sanders for saying that millions of Americans are forced to work two or three jobs. Because while Sanders was right, at least 8 million do more work than one job, 95% of Americans don't. Right. But still. Yeah. And at Polyfact, the venerable fact-checking operation run by the nonprofit Pointer Institute, in September they waded into a fight between Julian Castro and Joe Biden over their health care options and found a disputable but very supportable claim Castro has made that there is a big difference between a plan people are automatically enrolled in and one they opt into to be mostly false. That's such a small call. When Elizabeth Warren blamed trade policy for American job losses, an Associated Press fact check said, economists mostly blame those job losses on automation and robots, not trade deals. Well, some economists have made that claim, but others disagree. Completely pointing out that very little, if any, evidence exists to support the robot thesis. In the old days, back when W was president, remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I remember. Fact checkers weren't responsible for determining whether a magazine story was true, but whether the discrete statements of fact within it were true. You write a story, you send your story to the fact checker, and they look and be sure that what you're saying is defensible, at least. Mm -hmm. The trouble is fact checkers nowadays check contestable political statements. They're debatable. Well, okay, but don't call it false. Right, 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 right. As a result, Trump's lies, like his ludicrous suggestion that wind turbines cause cancer, appear no different than Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's contention that it's morally wrong to pay people less than a living wage. Yeah. It's this false uh, equivalency. Yeah. Outfits like Kessler's have spent the Trump era looking for evidence that CNN's ratings are up, not down, as Trump has claimed, or that you don't, in fact, need a voter ID to buy cereal at a supermarket, like Trump said. These are easily corrected lies, but the rot in our jingoistic militarism, our plutocratic economy, The racialized violence of calls for law and order continue to rampage through our common life unchecked. I I agree. Yeah. I that is absolutely right. It's a distraction. Some of these fact checkers are absolutely a distraction. Right. Like the Washington Post Post says Trump has said what, ten thousand lies now. Well just concentrate on the ones that make a difference in people's lives. There's so many things about Trump's history that are nothing but lies. And yet, when you see these people talk about it in these little round tables, and especially on MSNBC, it really is annoying to watch four or five people debate something inane for 45 minutes. It's just nuts. The president believes, the president thinks, call it what it is, he is a liar. He's a pathological liar. (laughs) Yeah, he is a liar, Mahler. From NPR, the Hoffeller Update. 
Remember, we talked about this, yeah. this story quite a while ago. Yeah. More than a year after his death, a cache of computer files saved on the hard drives of Thomas Hoffeller, a prominent Republican redistricting strategist, is becoming public. Mm -hmm. Republican state lawmakers in North Carolina fought in court to keep copies of these maps, spreadsheets, and other documents from entering the public record. But some files have already come to light in recent months through court filings and news reports. They have been cited as evidence of gerrymandering that got political maps thrown out of North Carolina. And they have raised questions about Hoffeller's role in the Trump administration's failed push for the census citizenship question. Now more of the files are available online through a website called the Hoffeller Files. That's at thehoffellerfiles.com, Hoffeller spelled H-O-F-E-L-L-E-R. After his death in 2018, Thomas Hoffeller's daughter, Stephanie, found hard drives filled with the GOP redistricting strategist files. Among them was a study in which he concluded that adding a citizenship question to census forms would be advantageous to Republicans and non-Hispanic whites. In why other words, it's racist. It's basic. And why this is important is this is a case that has gone to the Supreme Court over redistricting yeah. in North Carolina, Virginia, and other places around the country. This is significant because this is another way the Republicans are putting up institutional barriers to essentially the will of the people to be heard. The Democrats in certain states have to get seven, eight, nine, ten percent more votes in order to affect an election that they won yeah. by virtue of how many votes they got. Hoffeller was uh, he was working with a guy, Dale Oldham, and Dale Oldham, who was his partner in crime in this, according to Hoffeller's wife, Dale Oldham got away with the real stuff. When Hoffeller died, Oldham came in and grabbed the laptop and yeah. ran off with that. And according to the wife. That's where the really good stuff was. Yeah. The Hoffeller files have led to bombshell developments in two major legal battles in the political world. In September, Common Cause won its legal challenge to political maps in North Carolina, where a state court cited some of the files as evidence of gerrymandering designed to unfairly give Republicans advantage in winning elections and maintaining control of the state legislature. Other files have become intertwined in the federal lawsuits over the Trump administration's push to add the now-blocked citizenship question to the 2020 census. Growing up, Stephanie remembers her father correcting how she and others would pronounce gerrymandering with a soft G, gerrymandering, mm -hmm. which I always did. Me too. Until I read this article. Yes. Her father used the hard G as in Gary because Garymander is named after the former U.S. Vice President Elbridge Gary, who as governor of Massachusetts in 1812 signed into law a political map with a twisted salamander-shaped district. Yes. Well, yeah. thank you. And thank you for that. Garymandering. yes. Garymandering. That's right. Yeah. Garymandering. <laughs> From The Intercept. Yes. With the Suleimani assassination, Trump is doing the bidding of Washington's most vile cabal, Trump's demons. <laughs> Trump's demons, While the media focus during the Trump's presidency has centered around Russian collusion and impeachment, the most dangerous collusion of all was happening out in the open. The Trump-Saudi-Israel-United Arab Republic drive to war with Iran. That's right. Yeah. 
On August 3, 2016, just three months before Trump would win the Electoral College vote, Blackwater founder and complete a-hole Eric Prince arranged a meeting at Trump Tower. We've been talking about this guy for far too long. He should have been jailed and left there to rot. We have been talking about him for at least 15, 17, as long as this show has been on the air. We were talking about him around the time of the Gulf War. Blackwater, which he then changed the name of, and now he's consulting with the president on war policy. And he's moved out of America. He lives in the United Arab Emirates now because he cannot safely stay in the United States by, by virtue of all of the crimes that he's been involved with. For decades, Prince had been agitating for a war with Iran and as early as 2010 has developed a fantastical proposal for using mercenaries to wage it. That's something we covered right when Trump walked into office. That's right. At this meeting was George Nader, the Trump Tower meeting. This is the meeting in the Seychelles Islands that was talked about a lot at the time. Nader is an American citizen who had a long history of being a quiet emissary for the U.S. in the Middle East. Nader, who has also worked for Blackwater and Prince, is a convicted pedophile in the Czech Republic and is facing similar allegations in the U.S. Nader worked as an advisor for the Emirati royals and his close ties to Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi crown prince. There was also an Israeli at the Trump Tower meeting, Joe Zamel. He was there supposedly pitching a multi-million dollar social media manipulation campaign to the Trump team. Nader and Zamel were joined by Donald Trump Jr. One more common goal ran through the agendas of all the participants in this Trump Tower meeting, regime change in Iran. Trump campaigned on belligerence toward Iran and trashing the Obama-led Iran nuclear deal, and he has followed through on those threats, filling his administration with the most vile, hawkish figures in the U.S. national security establishment. For example, Mike Pompeo. Pompeo is the face of the Suleimani assassination. At what point did we think that electing people who believe in the end times or putting people who believe in the end times to uh, political positions where they can affect policy is a good idea? They believe in the end times. And so in Pompeo's mind, he is fulfilling prophecy. So does Pence. Yeah. The vice president of the United States is also a dominionist. Yeah. And so is Pompeo. These are people who believe that biblical law should apply to civil law, and they believe in the end times. Yeah, These and, are radical, and, radical people. And Go the ahead. end times get started in the Middle East. Yes. And of all places, exactly, for them to apply their expertise in the Middle East, of all places, yeah. with the help of Israelis who don't give a damn about the end times Christian stuff, except for their own survival, which I'm not yeah. opposed to the state of Israel and its existence any in any way, shape, or form. However, these people are manipulating each other, really. Yeah. They're manipulating each other, and this is not a good idea. Yeah. <sighs> <sighs> These <laughs> the people that are in charge of the most sensitive part of America's foreign policy. From the San Francisco Chronicle. California's air regulators are laying long-term plans to phase out gasoline-powered devices like leaf blowers and lawnmowers. That's good news for me. Yeah. California's air regulators say they can produce more noxious emissions than cars. Running a lawnmower for an hour generates as much smog-forming pollution as driving a 2017 Toyota Camry from Los Angeles to Las Vegas. Wow. A leaf blower is worse. 
you could go all the way to Denver. You know, the car would have to go all the way to Denver to equal the amount of smog-forming pollution that's caused by a leaf blower in one hour. Jesus. Yeah. Partly because there's no catalytic converters like cars have. Right. At least eight Bay Area cities have banned gas-powered blowers and more restrict their use. These restrictions force people to use cleaner, quieter electric mowers and blowers instead. Or you know what? How about rakes, people? You go to your goddamn gyms and work out your upper torso. Why don't you just get outside and rake some leaves? (laughs) From New Scientist. A lazy fix 20 years ago means the Y2K bug is taking down computers right now. The Y2020 bug and the Y2K bug stem from the way computers store dates. Yes. Many older systems express years in two numbers, 98, for example, for 1998, in an effort to save memory. The Y2K bug fear was that computers would treat 00 as 1900 right. instead of 2000. So that planes would just fall out of the sky, yeah. hospitals would implode, <laughs> things were going to happen. It was a bad, bad thing. Programmers wanting to avoid the Y2K bug had two options. Entirely rewrite their code or adopt a quick fix called windowing, which would treat all dates between 00 and 20 as from the 2000s, rather from the 1900s. An estimated 80% of computers fixed in 1999 used windowing. The theory was that these windowed systems would be outmoded by the time 2020 arrived, but many are still hanging on, and in some cases, the issue has been forgotten. For example, 2020 utility bills have been produced with the date 1920, (laughs) while tens of thousands of parking meters in New York City have declined credit card transactions because of the date glitch. In other words, your card expired in 1920. And finally, yes. the museum. The museum. Oh, I like the museum. Washington's museum dedicated to the history of journalism closed. You can subscribe to the Weekly Signals Weekly Review podcast at weeklysignals.com. Weeklysignals.com. Subscribe now.